I'll never forget. I came home really late. We were we were getting to uh, put on a show or a traveling band, and uh, so we had to set up really late into the night to get everything ready. Had a very late night, and uh, so I rushed home. Got to my house, ran inside, slept hard. It was late. Woke up the next day for get back to the venue and get back to work. And I walked outside, and I noticed something was missing from the landscape. I wasn't quite sure what yet. So um, I reached, looked around for my phone to call my wife, because I thought, hmm, we had two cars at this point, but they were both missing. And I was like, hmm, self? Did your wife somehow take both cars to work? So I reached in my pocket for my phone and realized I couldn't find my phone either. Um, so then I began looking for the keys to the car, because if the car was somewhere where at least I thought I left it, the keys would be somewhere. So I began looking for the keys, and then just for kicks, I started looking for my wallet. Coming up empty on all and I'm a math major, but I began to, to put together the equation is that the car where I had left it the night before was no longer there. The keys, which I thought I had brought inside to get in the house, were missing as well. The phone, which I would use to communicate with my wife to tell her something really awesome, like, hey, I think somebody stole the car, was also not there. And just, you know, for the heck of it, my wallet was also gone, because what's more fun than having to go to the DMV and getting all your documents replaced. And so, I'm a fool. I'm a fool, I can stop the sentence right here, I once broke up with Courtney. <laughs> I kid you not, I thought I was going to do food. Yeah, I'm sure if we passed the microphone around here this morning, we could, we could go through some pretty awful, awkward breakup stories. Uh, right, and so uh, certainly I am no exception. Uh, now, most of you, if, if you if you're gonna break up with somebody, and maybe guys, maybe I'll just talk to you because this may be in your future at some point. Think it through. Just just give it some thought. Think about not only that you're trying to maybe uh, remove yourself from the relationship, but also think about the context, the setting, what what things are going on. Because if you're gonna break up with somebody probably don't want to do it uh, when you're nine hours from your house with that person. Probably not a great idea. But, in the off chance that you're going to do it in that setting, so we've driven to Iowa from Oklahoma, in the off chance you're going to do it in that setting, and you're going to be there for four or five days, don't, don't do it the first night. <laughs> it's just going to make things really awkward for the rest of the trip. It's probably going to ruin that trip for her too. Uh, and so, yes, I am a fool. Uh, I've done things in my life that that are just foolish. And you know, as we're going to see today, Paul talks about the wisdom of God, and it's this foolishness that's, that's turned into wisdom. That's never happened for me. My foolishness has just kept right on being foolishness. Which, thank you for that. But. I say all that because I want to give you my qualifications. Because as we've been talking about wisdom, I actually think, I, uh, not that I'm qualified to tell you this, but that I can tell you about the thing that is the most true. I, I can tell you about the thing that is the most wise. And it's not because I am wise. 
It's because God's wisdom has revealed itself to us. And so I want to look at that this morning as we round out our series on wisdom. I invite you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be starting in verse 18. about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Today I, I want to look at this passage and I just want to point to two things um, today that I think we can see uh, from this passage. So I just want to start with the first. The first is that the wisdom of the cross, the wisdom of the cross invites us to reject ourselves in order to embrace another. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a divided church. The church, even in chapter 1, has rallied around different personalities that are present in the congregation. So people are claiming uh, to follow Paul, or people are claiming to follow Apollos. And, and, and later on we'll see that the church is not only divided by who they follow, they're divided by their practices. The rich are taking advantage of those who have less in the congregation. Uh, some of those are claiming to be wiser than others. The people who are mature in the church are not looking after those immature believers. And so there's division within the church. And when people begin to divide along different lines, um, things uh, begin to uh, seep into the, uh, the way that the church sees each other. So in the Corinthian church, pride, power, and ideology were beginning to be valued over humility, over serving one another in love, and ultimately over truth. And so for Paul, this was unacceptable. Not because it just wasn't right, but for Paul, the, the sole sign of the resurrected Christ that's lived out, that people can point to and see, is a people of God that crosses every societal boundary. For Paul, the churches that he planted, the churches in these different places, breaking down walls of division, was the sign that Jesus' resurrection was real. Because in first century Roman society, Jews had no reason to associate with Gentiles. They were actually actively discouraged from doing so. And you can read parts of the New Testament where they're wrestling with this. And, and likewise, Greeks um, had different ways of dividing themselves. People from different socioeconomic classes did not intermingle. And so you have these divisions in society that are being broken down by the reality of what Jesus has done. 
And so for Paul, when he wants to, when he wants to prove, you know, how can somebody say that the resurrection is real? How can somebody say that the resurrection proclaims that Jesus is Lord? He points to the church and he says, look at these people who would have nothing to do with one another if it were not for Christ. And guys, there's a little bit of beauty in this room. Look around this room. How many of us would be in the same room if it wasn't for Jesus right now? The church for Paul is the sign that the resurrection is not just a nice idea, but it is a new reality. And so when these divisions begin to creep in, Paul does not handle them lightly. And one of the things I love about Paul and his Corinthian correspondences is he gets a little salty, uh, a little sarcastic. He's like, oh, surely you know because you've been to heaven like I have. Uh, so we have Paul kind of maybe giving voice to some of his lesser tendencies, which I, I, I just kind of enjoy. Paul would write elsewhere in Galatians 3. He says, these divisions that have been handed to you by your birth or that have been chosen by, to you, by you, no longer valid. He says in Galatians chapter 3, he says, there's no longer Jew or Greek, there's no longer slave or free, there's no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul says, because of the wisdom of the cross, the divisions in our society are of secondary significance. Jesus is first. Now, if you read the New Testament, this is an issue at every turn. The book of Romans is so much about how, how do you live together, Gentiles and Jews? How do you uh, live with one another? Uh, so much of the way that Paul, Paul pronounces the gospel as the continuing story of, of what was promised to the to this, uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Gentiles are grafted into the story. If you read the book of Ephesians, it's about race religion. If you read the book of Galatians, so much of it is about how do you live together when your whole training, your whole life has been, well, we just kind of keep these walls up and that's just how things go. And so if so much of the New Testament is wrestling with how did people from different backgrounds, how did people from different classes live together, it's really no surprise to me that in our world today, in our society, we still have trouble with The New Testament spends so much time on these matters because, because somehow overcoming these differences is not just hard work, it is God's work. It is God's work in us. And so, no doubt you guys saw the images that poured out of Charlottesville, Virginia, of literal Nazis marching through the streets, flanked by none other than the Ku Klux Klan. Now, I read a lot of Karl Barth, a lot of C.S. Lewis, a lot of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Men who, who, like, through their writing and through their lives, stood against the Nazis from 1930s Germany. I never in my wildest dreams thought that that would be a reality in 2017. You know, full blow. And so as you saw that, you saw these people marching to declare that there are some people that are less than human. They were, they were proclaiming that there are some people that are not actually made in the image of God. That one race is superior to another. And church, let me just say it, just very plainly. It is evil. It is demonic. It is alive from the pit of hell. And church, one of the ways that we stand against these sorts of lies is by our love for one another. But friends, I know I, know I wouldn't go around and survey anybody in this room and be like, no, I thought that, that was a great idea. No, you would, you'd say, no, that's evil, that's wrong. 
And that's the kind of uh, overt racism that can, can take place in our world. But I also want to address the sort of covert racism that happens in our hearts. Racism in all its form, the, the, the kind that marches through the streets or the kind that marches through our hearts, is evil. And God, in His wisdom, is inviting us, inviting us to give up ourselves and to behold the face of somebody who may be different from us. And to see them made beautifully and wonderfully in the image of God. Revelation 7 9 rejoices in the vast multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation around the heavenly throne, the full mosaic array of the people made in God's image, worshiping Him, celebrating because they have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the song of their testimony. The wisdom of the cross unites us. The wisdom of the cross is not like the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the cross unites us. And the wisdom of the cross is humility, exemplified. The one to whom all glory was due strips himself of all honor and subjects himself to crucifixion. If that's not humility, what is? And so I want to challenge you today. I want to invite you, and I'm going to talk to my white brothers and sisters here just for a second. Uh, humor me. Guys, when stuff like this happens, and if you're a white man or a white woman in our world, instead of rushing to your selected news outlet to hear the reaction, will you seek out somebody uh, of a different race? Will you seek out somebody who, who may have had a different experience than you and simply simply ask a couple questions humbly? Uh, the first question is just simply, how, how did this particular event affect you? Did this have any impact on you? And, you know, maybe they'll say no. And here's the thing. If you sit down to a meal, then you just had a great excuse to have a great meal with somebody and share some food. So, you win. But then can you ask another question that might be painful? Would you ask, have you had experiences with racism in our country? Has this shaped any part of who you are? Has this been a part of your story? Can you just ask humbly? Because the wisdom of the cross is not like the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world says, we already know everything. We already know why people are doing this stuff. And just assumes that you know other people's stories. But the wisdom of the cross says, I want to listen. I want to put myself in a place where I may be maybe even a bit uncomfortable. So can you do that? And now, I, I want to talk to everybody in here uh, today. Um, could we be people who confess? Just... Just stop trying to gloss over the fact that these things happen in our world. See, this is the problem. This is why America is uniquely uh, unable to deal with racism. is because we won't confess that it's part of who we are. Uh, there were a group of Native Americans who lived here before uh, the settlers got here. They owned this land. They lived here. And it was taken from them. This nation was built upon the backs of people transported, ripped from their homes in Africa. We have a past of racism that we have tried to ignore, and we don't teach it in our history classes. But guys, can we just be people who acknowledge, and then as Christians, can we be people who acknowledge that we don't have it all together? That our thoughts are not God's thoughts, that our ways are not His, not yet. That we are becoming more like Him, and that we are, are prone to these sorts of thoughts in the, in the depths and the breaches of our hearts. Could we be, be people who confess? Ephraim Smith, a pastor in Sacramento, says the solution to the dilemma of race is not colorblindness. It's reconciliation. 
It's righteous. Third, for all of us in here, uh, when you ask those hard questions, can you commit to being a peacemaker? Can you say, how can I help and really need it? And say, what can I do to, to, to change the narrative, to be a, a, a different in this world? Can you, can you commit to it and actually follow through? Guys, these are not easy conversations, but they are at the heart of what Jesus brought into our world. They're at the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not you get to go to heaven when you die. The gospel is that God has created a new people, a new creation in this world, and that he is making us new, that he is overcoming our sins and our shortcomings and enabling us to be known by the world, by our love for one another. Would you commit to the wisdom of the cross? Because the wisdom of the cross is inviting us to a different way. Uh, one last thing, and this is something I think that uh, we can all we can all gain from. So if you're somebody who you just find yourself constantly inundated with news and noise, uh, can I just ask you, like if you're driving in the car and you have the radio on and they're talking about all the things that are going on in this world, or you get home and you turn on the TV and it's talking heads yelling at each other about these things that are happening, why you should be so afraid and so terrified of all the things that are happening in this world, and you get on the internet and you read stories about how terrible things are. If this is your reality, can I just invite you to take the revolutionary step of just taking a dive on the And not just, so that's going to leave a void of time. Uh, I'm going to invite you just to four simple practices that you might be able to fill uh, that time with or that space with. Because if you're constantly being inundated with you should be terrified and afraid, guess what? That is shaping you. That is molding. And it doesn't mean there are not real issues that we are facing, both as a, as a community here in the Trenton-Mercer area and larger, largely as a nation. It doesn't mean that those things aren't real. It doesn't mean we ignore them. But it just means what has the primary voice? What is shaping us? What is allowing us to see a, a glimpse of who we should be? And so in turning off your selected uh, devices or whatever is going on, can I just invite you a couple things? Uh, first, you read some scripture. Shocking that the preacher would tell you to read the Bible, I know. But would you actually do it? We live in a world that is uh, scarily biblically illiterate. And so, would you just fill that space with something uh, where God can speak to you? Second, would you pray? Would you say, instead of being afraid of everything that's happening, would you say, Lord, help us. Lord, we need you. Lord, this is what it's like when we're left to our own devices. Third, and this is way more fun, would you sit down to a meal with somebody? Guys, this is a spiritual practice. Uh, would you sit down to a meal with your own family? Would you share a conversation? Would you share a life? These things really, really begin to take us in a different direction. And fourth, and this, you know, this may be a personal uh, just like soapbox for me. Would you read a book? Would you just read a novel? Uh, would you read something where you're invited into another person's story? Books have a way, novels, stories have a way of inviting us into empathy. And I think Jesus is saying, some beautiful stories in the world. I wish you wouldn't tell them. The wisdom of the cross invites us to reject ourselves that we might embrace somebody else. And guys, if you're constantly being told by the news uh, how afraid you should be or how right you are, it's not wisdom. It's foolish. And the wisdom of the cross rejects it. 
So, the first thing is that the wisdom of the cross leads us to a rejection of ourselves in order that we might embrace another. The second thing I want us to focus on today is that the wisdom of the cross invites us to reject ourselves in order to find ourselves embraced by God. The wisdom of the cross doesn't just affect and influence the way that we see others. It influences the way that we see ourselves and enables us to deal honestly with God. Uh, for example, my lovely daughter Evie. Um, this is particularly awesome. Uh, I love Evie so much, and I'm so fired up about her and my other kids. It goes without saying, I'm their dad. Uh, I accept her for who she is, and I'm coming to know who she is. And even this morning, I, I was at the coffee shop acquiring my coffee, and I got a phone call. And I try not to take calls in close settings like a coffee shop. I just feel bad, but I knew this one I needed to take with my wife and just figure out what's going on. And Courtney gets on the phone. She's like, Evie just wanted to tell you something. And I was like, cool, cool, what? And she goes, she pooped in the potty. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, yeah, right? Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm overjoyed in this small space about my daughter pooping in the potty. And of course, I, I don't know why, I didn't just say she did, but I was like, she pooped in the potty? Uh, so everybody got you know, outside the conversation, too. And so then you're like, all right, do I go explain it, or I just wear it? And I just walked out. Um, I love you. I, I, I am just overjoyed with who she is. I see glimpses of of insight and compassion that I, I just never thought you know, were possible in a three-year-old. Uh, I, I love who I'm seeing that she is and who she's becoming. I accept her. Uh, but the, the question is, is not simply do I accept her, because there are things that I have to reject about her. The world would not be a better place if I accepted her three-year-old self for all that it is. Uh, that kind of parenting that just says, oh, that's just who they are. <laughs> It's a little scary for everybody else when they're being rude and unkind and unjust. Now, there are parts of Evie that are not acceptable. There are parts of Evie that, as her loving father, that I reject. That I say, no, this is not who you're going to be. This is not, uh, this is not who God has made you to be. And so, the question that's often asked in our world is simply, do you accept me? And I can see, this makes so much sense to me. This is a, I think it's a truly noble pursuit of just saying, do, do you accept me? And church, we should be the people who are unabashedly say yes. We are people who accept you. We are people who, who uh, can accept you right where you are. But the wisdom of the cross doesn't stop you. Jesus in becoming incarnate takes all the steps. He, he enacts his grace. He, as Eugene Peterson writes in John 1, he moves into the neighborhood. He draws near to us in order to embrace us. But he doesn't just leave us with mere acceptance. And that baseline question, can you accept me, is really the only thing that is ever asked in our world. It's the loftiest and highest goal of humanity. Uh, this idea that we can all just kind of live in our own individualistic bubbles and not really impact each other. But what we see constantly is that our world is so much more interconnected, interlocked, than we would ever imagine. You see, the wisdom of the world seeks unconditional, unquestioning acceptance, which sounds really loving on its face. But when you drill down into it, it holds no hope for peace or truth or flourishing because it's powerless. Transform us. It's powerless to make us new. 
Pope Francis says something I love so much. He says, Jesus came to save us from the lie that says people can't change. The wisdom of the cross is transformative because it puts to death that which is dead in us. In placing our lives in Jesus' crucified hands, we find that Jesus embraces us and nails our sin to the cross, rejecting sin by conquering it. The wisdom of the cross is the wisdom of rejection, the wisdom of an embrace that accepts us as we are, yes, but is so gracious and loving and powerful and transformative that it refuses to leave us that way. You know, there's the old cliche, and sometimes cliches work. God loves you so much as you are. He loves you so much, he refuses to leave you that way, right? It's easily lost on us, the horror, that the cross enlisted in the ancient world. Crucifixion was not only a method of execution, it was a public display of power designed to remove all dignity from the victim. It was reserved for dissidents, rebels, and oppressed for those who dare question the all-encompassing power of the empire, Cicero, a Roman philosopher, said of crucifixion, let even the name of the cross be kept away, not only from the bodies of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their sight, and their hearing. He's saying Roman citizens can't be crucified, but they also shouldn't see it, they shouldn't think about it, they shouldn't hear about it. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians that Jesus' death on the cross is a stumbling block scandal to the Jewish people. For the Jewish people, Christ's death on a cross didn't declare that he was the Messiah, the risen Lord of all the world. It declared that he was cursed by God, a blasphemer, that he got what he deserved. Paul is pointing out in this passage, he says, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. He's pointing out that it is patently absurd to declare that a man that was crucified by the Romans is somehow the Jewish Messiah and consequently the true Lord of all the earth, both Jew and Gentile. That was absurd then, and it's absurd now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, To die on the cross means to suffer and to die as one who is outcast and rejected. See, the cross moves against the wisdom of the world at every turn. God was crucified. That in itself is a paradox of absurdity. God in the flesh was God forsaken. In the face of the pride of the highest religious forces and the greatest political regime, the Lord of all the universe did not assert himself. He did not say, I'm the one you should be worshiping. I'm the one to whom all glory and all power is due. He gave himself up. He gave himself uh, to die on a cross. The glory of God took on abject shame and humiliation. The Prince of Peace endured the, endured the full weight of human violence. The one to whom the whole world should have lifted up on a throne of glory was lifted up on a murderous torture device. Instead of praising him, we mocked him. Instead of kissing him, we spit on him. And in being rejected by all of humanity, Jesus, with arms extended, embraces humanity. As his arms were nailed to a cross, as they were put there, as he let them be put there, it's not just simply a, an act of passive violence. He is embracing the entire world as he's lifted up above the world. Jesus, with arm ex arms extended, embraces us. And in embracing us, he exposes us for what we are, sinful, violent, God-hating. God reveals himself fully as the one who loves us. He loves us so much. He exposes the death in us. He embraces us and changes us. 
And so guys, it's so important that we grasp this here this morning. God accepts you. If you hear nothing else, hear that. God is drawing near to you just as you are. He's embracing each one of us by rejecting that which separates us from Him. He's taken it upon Himself. And He has conquered it. He has exhausted His power. It has no hold over us anymore. But Jesus, when He begins His ministry, says, Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The wisdom of the world says, Accept me, accept me. The wisdom of the cross says, for I'm drawing near, and I'm going to bring you to more life and more truth than you could ever imagine. The wisdom of the cross says that part of us needs to die, that we have to reject that which we claim the place of God in our lives, as Christ did on the cross. Christ, in being rejected by the world, God forsaken, embraces the entire world. Richard Hayes says it this way. He says that the biblical story teaches us that God's love cannot be reduced to mere inclusiveness. Authentic love calls us to repentance, discipline, sacrifice, and transformation. What the New Testament means by love is concretely embodied in the cross. There's a man named Daryl Davis. Maybe you've seen this story floating around. Uh, I just find it really beautiful. He grew up uh, outside of Boston. He's a musician, incredible piano player. Uh, he plays in some country and honky-tonk bands. And uh, yeah, there he is. Uh, maybe not your first image of a honky-tonk uh, piano player. And he was uh, playing a gig in Maryland. He was approached by a white man who said, I've never seen a black man play the piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. To which Davis replied, who do you think taught Jerry Lee Lewis how to play the piano? The two ended up striking up an extended conversation. With the white man eventually, after hanging out and talking to this man for a while, eventually admitting that he had never had a drink with a black man because he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, eventually, through uh, Davis's friendship, this initial conversation, Davis was able to gain access to a man named Roger Kelly, who was the Grand Wizard of the KKK in America. Davis decided he was going to go over to Robert Kelly's house. And people told him, don't go over to Robert Kelly's house, he will kill you. But Davis said, how can this man hate me if he doesn't know me? So he went over to his house. And after this meeting, he began, when he was in the area playing as a touring musician, he began to invite Kelly to his gigs. And then he would go even further. He would invite him to his house. And he would invite him to sit down with, uh, Davis would invite him to sit down with his black friends share a meal. But Davis didn't stop there. This is the truly radical part of what Davis saw. Davis would go to the Ku Klux Klan rally. The only one not wearing a hood. The object of all their hatred and their vitriol. The object of all their ignorance, of all their evil. And he would just wear it. He would say, yeah, you know, you're, you're here for your hate rally. Go ahead and do that. I'm just going to be here. And then we can talk, once you're done, we can talk about why, why you're racist, why you feel the way you do about these things. And through this process, through Davis engaging with this guy, Kelly, uh, through him subjecting himself to the sort of shame and horror that none of us would ever want to feel, being the object of a whole group of people's uh, derision and terror, through this process, Kelly quit the Ku Klux Klan, 
Over uh, nearly a hundred others have followed his lead, all because of their friendship with Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is a funny guy. I like him. I don't know him. He collects the hoods that are uh, of the people who, who quit the clan. He keeps their hoods as souvenirs. Yeah. Davis is a fool. Total fool. He's foolish enough to believe that his own love for people, that being a friend to them, that even a meal, will disarm hate. He's foolish enough to believe this because he believes in the power of God. You see, here's, here's the foolishness of the cross so plainly. The place of death for the Son of God is life to all the world. Jesus' rejection by humanity means that we can reject all in the world that would dehumanize somebody else or that would dehumanize us. It all begins with God's grace. It is all Him stooping down to our place. Don't miss this. The person of Jesus in the Davis story, or the person uh, who represents Jesus in Daryl Davis' story, Daryl Davis. Um, this is the wisdom of God. That the wisdom of the cross is that when we reject ourselves, we can actually embrace somebody else. And this is what Davis does. Uh, this is the wisdom of the cross, that we, when we reject ourselves, when we subject ourselves to God's gracious and caring hands, that we will find ourselves. This is foolish. This is absolutely absurd. This is impossible. As Paul notes, that the wisdom of, of the cross is foolishness to the world. But you know what? I'm just foolish enough to believe it. I'm foolish enough to believe that this message is the very power of God, as Paul says, that through the proclamation of Jesus crucified, that people are coming to find him as Lord of all the earth. I'm foolish enough to believe that if I find my life in the death of my Savior, I'm foolish enough to hope beyond hope that this message will resurrect lives that seem beyond repair, that are mired in addiction, in sin, in bitterness. I'm foolish enough to believe that the cross is the way to communion and fellowship with God, that by suffering with Him, we come to know Him. Thus, it's not a place of horror or of loss, but it's a place of joy and of victory. I admit to you, church, I am a fool. And I hope you'll join me. Let's pray. God, you're gracious, you're good, you're merciful to us. But as we see your wisdom, we see the, the, just the poverty of our own wisdom so clearly. God, the way that we would interact with somebody by default is put on full display. And you convict us. Or you're challenging us to, to overcome uh, not just niceties, not just pleasantries, but to be people who truly are resurrected people. Who love people uh, from every uh, walk of life. God, you're challenging us to be people who are not defined by our uh, places of birth or our skin color, Lord, but are defined by our love for you. And that in that process, Lord, our differences are celebrated and lifted up. God, you're challenging us to make us, uh, you're challenging us to place ourselves in your faithful hands. God, that we would reject all the, the sin that we need to repent of here this morning, and that we would find ourselves in the care of your loving hands. God, your mercy endures forever. God, you are gracious and loving. You have made yourself known and dear to us. May we draw near to you, not holding on to anything of our lives, not fooling ourselves that we can keep part of ourselves in light of your cross, but giving it all to you as you entrusted your whole self to the Father. We love you, Lord. You're inviting us to rejection. You're inviting us to embrace. 
Your body gets the wisdom of the cross. Pray all the things joining. Church, as we approach the communion table, uh, I, I'm going to read a simple confession together. Uh, so I invite you where you sit uh, to just read as the congregation. And I will read this to celebrate, and then we will uh, approach the table. And as you do that, I invite you, if, if the Lord is just saying, hey, this is you, you need to, you need to, to go a different direction, you need to repent this way, uh, would, you, would you begin to do that business with the Lord right there? He is here to all of us. Uh, as you speak to him where you sit, he will be here. Okay? So as we approach the table this morning, uh, let us confess.